You are listening to you are listening to Passing Shots with Pete Zebron on the Pro 10 Radio Network, a production of Pro 10 Global Sports. Enjoy the show. Passing shots on the Pro 10 Radio Network. Today is Monday, March 2nd, 2015. Pete Zebron of Tennis Acumen, along with Jared Pine of A Second Serb. Good afternoon, Jared. Hey, Pete. Good to be back with you and doing another show. Absolutely. And uh, this show, uh, for all our listeners, is dedicated, the first portion of it, uh, for the young guns of the ATP Tour. Uh, just not too long ago, there weren't too many youngsters up and coming that were doing fairly well on the ATP Tour, then uh, Nick Kyrgios sort of broke the mold at, uh, with his result at Wimbledon last year. Just this last week, Jared uh, Bornikoric uh, took out Andy Murray quite handily, and uh, we'll start talking about those two guys as well as a few others around the world before we really spend the majority of the show uh, about the Americans. But uh, let's start off talking with, uh, about Bornikoric, uh, the 18-year-old, who uh, who beat Andy Murray quite handily last week. Uh, your your thoughts? Uh, I know you've been watching a lot of the youngsters, but let's start talking about George just a little bit here. Yeah, I mean, he was a lucky loser uh, to get into the tournament in the first place. I uh, got through a tight three-set match with Malek Tazeri, then got a little bit lucky again in the second round, uh, being Marcos Baghdadis. So it was six all in the third set, going to a tiebreaker when uh, Bagdash retired, but nothing lucky about his win over Andy Murray. 6-1, 6-3, I mean, to dominate uh, a big four player like that, it's extremely impressive, um, especially at his age. And he, he's someone with a lot of talent. He's now beaten also Yersi Yanovich and uh, Rafael Nadal. And so he's collecting some big wins. And at the end of last year, he was named the ATP Newcomer of the Year, and he's backed that up in these first couple months. Uh, this hasn't been a sophomore slump for him. Yeah, he's come out firing. Absolutely. And, you know, I think he came on everybody's radar last year, almost a year ago. Uh, Croatia went to Poland to play Davis Cup. Janowitz at the time was uh, ranked 21st in the world, and uh, George took him out. And as you mentioned, a very nice win against Nadal as well, and uh, here another win against Murray. So uh, Borna George uh, really, really playing some very good tennis right now, just 18 years old, up to 61 in the world. And, uh, again, someone to uh, keep your eye on going forward. He's one of a few people that we'll talk about here today. Uh, another one that uh, has really thrown his name into a lot of conversations, Nick Kyrgios, who's up to 36 in the world right now, out of Australia. Obviously, his huge monumental win against Rafael Nadal in Wimbledon. Uh, got all the way to the quarterfinals at Wimbledon and uh, backed that up with a quarterfinal berth uh, in at the Australian Open this year. Uh, unfortunately for the Aussies and Nick Kyrgios, he's not going to play Davis Cup uh, this coming weekend against the Czechs. But uh, I know, again, you've had your eye on Kyrgios for a while. Your thoughts and uh, elaboration on Nick Kyrgios. Yeah, I mean, you were absolutely right with what you said about Kyrgios, Kyrgios a little while ago, about how eight months ago he really set the tone for these young guys uh, getting that win over Nadal at Wimbledon. Uh, before then, you talk about probably two years prior to that, uh, Kyrgios had been in and outside of the top 200. Lucas Pui had been in and outside the top 200. Uh, but there was a stretch of time where they were the only ones in the top 200, sometimes none of them. 
um, as far as the teenagers go, to where you know you just had no representation of these teenagers in the top 200. Then Curious had his big breakthrough at Wimbledon. A little bit later, Alexander uh, Zverev. We'll, we'll talk more about him later. Breaks through uh, in Hamburg, George. Uh, and now you look at the rankings. You have seven seven teenagers ranked in the top 200. And I, mean, I just think that's incredible how quickly the the game has changed. And we talk about this now being a sport where guys at 33, 34 years old can have success, but at the same time, teenagers uh, getting through as well. So I think this is a really exciting time for tennis, um, kind of the generation between the big four and these teenagers right now. They uh, they haven't uh, lived up to expectations, and they disappointed. Um, but these guys, are they're breaking through early, and, and they're already proving themselves, particularly uh, Nick Kyrgios. Uh, we all know he had the big forehand, big serve, uh, but two two times getting the quarterfinals of a, of a Grand Slam. Um, he hasn't played a full schedule of tournaments yet, and yet he's still ranked uh, 36th in the world. Um, I just think that's incredible, really doing it with two good results. Imagine when he starts playing 18 tournaments a year uh, at this level. You know, I don't think we're a long away from looking at him as a top 20 player and uh, being stuck in the top 20. I don't think – I think when he gets there, I don't think he's going to drop out. I think uh, – you know, he already believes that he belongs there, and it's just a matter of time before he's there for good as a top 20 player. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, completely agree. And, and, you know, the interesting twist on him, uh, right before Wimbledon last year, he played a challenger on grass. I believe he lost first round and uh, thought about going, uh, leaving England, going back home to Australia. There was uh, a challenger the following week. He, he actually won that. Uh, that gave him all the momentum in the world, literally, where uh, he took that and parlayed that very nicely at Wimbledon, and uh, that set the table for uh, the Nick Kyrgios that we're all familiar with here today. And uh, nice to see, and I completely agree. Once he's able to maintain and, and play a balanced schedule, a regular schedule, uh, staying healthy, uh, again, this is somebody that nobody really wants to play given the, the results that he's had. And uh, just a shame that he's not going to play Davis Cup uh, against the Czechs, but uh, that might be a good thing with respect to the travel and uh, the North American hard courts coming up here in Indian Wells, which you and I will attend, and uh, Miami as well. And um, another name, uh, Jared, just want to throw this out there. We're going to just uh, go a little north of the teens, if you will. 21-year-old Austrian Dominic team. He's up to 46 in the world. Um, he's, uh, again, has the same uh, coach, uh, physio, as, as Ernest Golbus. They've actually played a few times uh, just recently with team getting the better of Golbus. But I think what a lot of people were really impressed with with respect to team last year is, uh, well, not only his results, but he came through qualifying just about everywhere, uh, advanced through qualifying one, two, three, uh, you know, rounds at, at tournaments and whatnot, you know, got to the third round at Indian Wells, um, got to a final losing to uh, Gofan in his home country of Austria. Um, I did see him play a little bit, uh, very uh, upset uh, by uh, Robbie Ginepri in Cincinnati, very surprised by that result, but um, uh, he's somebody that likes a little bit of a slower court, and I know this is, uh, again, uh, you have had your eye on Dominic team for a while now. Uh, give give our listeners an overview of, of your analysis uh, and elaboration on Dominic team. Yeah, he's, he's definitely had a successful um, development onto the senior tour now, and I think uh, he has a past that other teenagers can look at and see, you know, what did Dominic team do well? And uh, how can I do the same? Because he, he has been successful. Now, you mentioned already he's 46 in the world. 
that that's where you want to be as a 21 year old. That's a good spot to be at. He's had success uh, primarily on clay, but also on hard. Uh, but what he did really well was um, he battled it out on the Futures Tour for a long time. And when he finally started to have success on the Futures Tour, he reached 10 finals. Um, then he starts going into Challengers and pretty quickly had success on the Challenger Tour, um, won two titles and 12 tournaments, and then uh, started going into those qualities and didn't didn't waste his time too long getting stuck at the Challenger. Um, you know, there's a lot of players who have their careers stuck in that 250 and Challenger uh, kind of purgatory, and, and uh, they, they struggle to get up to where uh, they want to be, which is top 100 eventually. Um, and so I think team really developed himself well in the futures and waited until he was ready to move on to the Challenger Tour and then stayed there as, as little as possible so they could get right on to the ATP World Tour and start competing against the best players in the world, and he's having success there. Completely agree, and uh, again, at that ranking, you know, he's uh, obviously in main draws of, of not only the majors, but just about every tournament he enters at this point in time, and I, I like what you said, uh, you know, he, he played accordingly, uh, followed the route, followed the script, if you will, working with Gunter Brisnik, and that really helped him quite a bit with uh, with his development. He has paid his dues uh, at the lower levels of professional tennis, and uh, all eyes on Dominic team going forward. Uh, Really looking forward to to seeing more of him going forward. And Jared, we talked about three of the maybe now more familiar names to pro tennis fans: uh, Kyrgios, Chorich, and Team. We're going to shift our attention a little bit now to some of the young Americans. Uh, uh, some tennis aficionados may be familiar with some of their names. If not now, certainly not too long, uh, possibly as early as later on this year, certainly next. We're going to start out with uh, Gerald Donaldson, an 18-year-old who's up to number 173 in the world. He he won the Maui Challenger earlier this year. He won three futures in a row last year. Uh, he was uh, he got through qualifying at the 250 tournament in Memphis where he played uh, Kozlov and uh, actually lost to Sam Querrey in a in a battle there. But uh, your thoughts and if you can give an overview on Gerald Donaldson. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about him before, and I remember you you asked me for a comparison to a currently uh, in the top one area that people would know, and I struggled to think of one. You know, in, in the days following that, I, I realized you know a great comparison for him is uh, Marinko Matosovic. Um, mm. Being willing, like Matosovic, he's willing to come to the net and have success there, but he's particularly good when he stays on the baseline, just grinds out rallies that with big physical ground strokes. Uh, not running around, just kind of bullying his opponents from the baseline. Uh, has a little bit of a quirky serve and a lot of attitude on court. Um, you know, we mentioned before, he can get angry and show his emotions on the court. Uh, but you know, he, he's someone who's who's starting to learn how to how to use all that um, emotion and uh, nervous energy uh, to make himself better as a player. And we're really starting to see that this year, as he's been another one of these teenagers to break into the top 200. He's currently. 173 in the world, just picked up his first tour-level victory, his first challenger tour title this year, as you mentioned, in Maui. Um, so things are really trending in the right direction for him, and uh, he's developing very quickly, still only 18 years old. Uh, so I think that's the most impressive part is that, you know, of all these teenagers in the top 200, he's one of the youngest. 
Yeah, good point. And, you know, a challenger, that was a $50,000 challenger in, in Maui. So it's always nice to get a, a W there. You know, obviously these guys, some of whom that we're talking about, have gotten some future wins under the belt or gotten deep in futures. But a, a Maui title, uh, this, this Gerald Donaldson now has a challenger title to his name. And again, starting to play some, some main draw events as well. Uh, talked about him playing main draw in Memphis. So I like the, uh, the Matosevic analogy there. Um, Marinko Matosevic is always entertaining to watch for those of you who have not seen him. He, that I liked your, your point there about the nervous energy and really channeling that uh, to his advantage on court. Just 18, Gerald Donaldson. We look forward to seeing him. Hopefully uh, we'll see him get wild-carded, uh, possibly ending Wells and or Miami, but certainly, obviously, once uh, – Hardcore tennis returns to North America in the late part of the summer. I'm sure we'll be seeing Gerald Donaldson at some of those 250s and possibly some Masters 1000s as well. And uh, someone that he played, Jared, in Memphis, uh, the first set was very close, and then Donaldson ran away with it. Uh, Stefan Kozlov, 17 years old. He's at 413 in the world. Uh, that match against Donaldson first round, he lost 5-7, love 6, but... Let's go back to last year. He did get to the final of the Sacramento Challenger where he lost in the final to Sam Query, who probably shouldn't have been playing that Challenger, but uh, Sam won three in a row in three weeks in, in California. Also, uh, we talked about Borna Chorich. Um, Stefan Kozlov took the first set from Chorich in second round of U.S. Open qualifying last year. This is somebody that you, again, have uh, had your eye on for quite some time. Share with our listeners uh, your imp- your thoughts on Stefan Kozlov and if you could possibly give a uh, comparison to a current ATP player at this point, who his game matches up with. Um, yeah, obviously you mentioned that uh, final in Sacramento. That's kind of what people are clinging to for uh, the hope with Kozlov. He's only 17 years old, so there's certainly going to be a lot more development there. Uh, he's growing. He's a lot taller than when he kind of first burst on the scene when he was only 14 years old. I mean, he was he was catching people's attention even back then. Uh, he's grown a lot, and that was that was one of the worries is that he was just this little guy uh, that had great touch, um, great uh, hands, uh, really had good racket control, but he he was just so small and and had nothing on his serve. Uh, but the serve something we've seen develop a lot. He's still working on getting a a, a legitimate kick serve right now. He he kind of slices his second serve. And uh, that's been a problem in some of his matches. I, I got to see him play against Taylor Fritz, who's another person we'll talk about later. Um, and Fritz just ha- just completely controlled Kostov's second serve because he couldn't get um, a good kick on it. And yeah, pick someone to compare him to would definitely be uh, Kanishikori. Um, both okay. guys extremely talented, great hands. Uh, Nishikori also has um, a little bit of a technical issue with his serve. Uh, that he's done a lot to correct in the last couple of years. And, you know, you look at Nishikori, he's found a way to have success despite having, you know, probably the weakest serve of anyone in the top ten. He's number four in the world. Uh, and, so, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure any of these teenagers that we're talking about would love to be a number four in the world someday. Um, and Kostov, like Nishikori, much stronger on the backhand side. Uh, very patient, very smart player, especially for a 17-year-old. Um, you, know, you don't see a lot of 17-year-olds. Uh, play with such mental composure as, as he does, um, which is, you know, a little bit one of the things I worry about with Kostov is I don't know how much room there is to grow uh, because he is a very mature 17-year-old. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, so these next four years, it's going to be interesting to see if he can continue to improve himself as a player at the same rate that his peers are going to be improving. Um, but if he can do that, you know, th- there's been attention around him for a long time for a reason. He has great hands, great technique, great skill, and uh, he could be a very successful player. I look forward to that. And, and you mentioned, uh, as I did, the uh, Sacramento final loss to Query there that, uh, again, he he was able to appear on people's radar there. And, again, um, playing the main draw against Donaldson in Memphis just, uh, just last month as well. And you mentioned um, – Taylor Fritz, you saw that match, I believe, in Los Angeles. You were able to check that out. Uh, Taylor Fritz, another 17-year-old, defeated Kozlov in Los Angeles. Uh, you spent some time at that uh, at that tournament, uh, Jared. If you again, people have maybe heard of Gerald Donaldson with his uh, with his result in in Maui and, and the Memphis main draw. Same thing with Kozlov. But we're going to talk about some guys now coming up, some youngsters, some young Americans who people might not be familiar with at all, uh, Taylor Fritz being one of them, 17 years old. You were there for the match when he beat Kozlov in L.A. What what do you like about Fritz? Yeah, that, that match was played at um, U- USC, in fact, uh, one of the great homes for college tennis. A lot of championships won there. So fun to see these two young guys battling out on, on those courts. And Fritz just so flat on his ground strokes. I mean, just so much power and so much strength. He's um, just recently turned 17, so he's a young 17-year-old. Uh, he's actually a couple months older than uh, Kosloff, but still um, just very young, a lot of power both off his serve, uh, forehand, backhand. He was just able to boss around some of the rallies. Um, very good return. Uh, he struggled in that match a little bit to make uh, some of the adjustments as the match went on. Uh, certain things weren't working for him, but he stuck with them. And uh, but you know that's that's something that can easily be developed um, as you know as he becomes more successful. He's going to have uh, different coaches come along. He hasn't even uh, become full-time professional. That was the one professional event he's played this year. Um, so you know he's not going out there and and paying the best coaches in the world. Um, so you know. In, in contrast to Kostov, uh I think Fritz has a ton of room to grow, and he had great uh, results on on the junior tour. He beat up a couple times uh, Andre Rublev, who's another one of these juniors who's right at the top of the list as far as name recognizability. He's been number one junior in a while, uh, whereas Fritz has been top ten and gotten some nice wins over him, both on clay and hard court. Uh, then last year at Wimbledon, made a run to the quarterfinals on, on the grass. Um, so this is someone who's already comfortable on all three surfaces at only 17 years old, has a lot of power, a lot of weapons, and a lot of room to grow. And so I think around him there's a lot of excitement. Uh, I've heard some people say, you know, he's going to be top 200 within a year. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that might be pushing a little bit because he's not even playing a full uh, schedule of events yet. But I can certainly see by by the time he's 20, people are going to know his name. And that's, you know, three years from now, he's, he's got a lot of time to develop. He's very young and very good already. Yeah, I thank you for that analysis. Uh, just a couple of questions for you about Taylor Fritz. And, again, how cool was it for you to be able to see a Fritz-Kozlov match at the University of Southern California? Probably not too many people there. And those that were there, I'm sure – not too many people knowing exactly whom they were looking at uh, going forward. But two questions, uh, Jared. Uh, first, 
given uh, what some people have mentioned, maybe top 200 sooner than later for Fritz, and obviously you mentioned the next three years we're going to be all familiar with him, do you think that it would benefit Taylor Fritz to play a year or two of college? And uh, second part of that question, much like uh, I'm going to ask you about everybody, uh, who on the ATP Tour does uh, Taylor Fritz most resemble? Yeah, after his one, I actually got a chance to sit down and talk with Taylor Fritz, did a little interview with him. It wasn't planned. He, he was standing outside the course by himself. I thought, well, hey, you know, I'm a journalist. I should go interview him. So we mm-hmm. actually sat down at a table, and I started talking to him, and I asked him, you know, of, of these guys in, in the top 100, who do you like to watch? Who do you like to compare yourself to? And uh, who do you uh, try to emulate? And the two names he threw out, and they make a lot of sense, were uh, – Juan Martín del Potro and Tomás Berdych. And, uh, you know, those are two tall guys, power off forehand, backhand, and serve success on all three services, all characteristics that, that you already see in Taylor Fritz. And, uh, you know, those guys have been successful in the top ten. Obviously, del Potro's had some injuries. Uh, but when he's healthy, he's a consistent top ten player. And Tomás Berdych has been in the top ten for uh, seven, eight years now. Um, so, obviously, two great guys for him to be comparing himself to and, and trying to learn from. And uh, I think that can only make him better is by watching these guys. As far as college tennis, um, I think, you know, at 17, he's a year away from potentially doing college tennis. But within a year from now, I think he's just going to be way beyond any of the talent that's currently at college tennis. Obviously, there's a lot of good players there, um, you know, guys that are 21, 22, and he'd be an 18-year-old competing against some of them. Uh, but I think he's all, he would already be, you know, one of the best players in college tennis. I think um, being able to go out and play full matches with ad scoring, I think that's certainly a factor. The no ad scoring, the super tiebreakers in third, uh, these short matches. I think going out and playing real matches for him is important. Also in college tennis, you only play on hard court. Uh, and as I've already mentioned, his, his strengths are being able to also do well on clay and grass. And so continuing to develop that on Futures tour is key, and it's not that when you when you go play college tennis that you just forget about your professional career. He would still be playing uh, futures events during the off season, but I think um, him going pro is going to happen here pretty soon. Uh, he's not going to stay in the junior ranks much longer. Uh, he's going to be full time pro before it's even time for him to go to college. So I, I don't think college for him is going to happen. Uh, but certainly for other guys, it's not a bad option. Well, good. I, I really like the fact that you had the opportunity not only to see him, uh, see him beat Kozlov, but also be able to chat and interview with him after the fact. And uh, I, I like, uh, you know, it, it's very helpful for our listeners and for me as well uh, with his comparison uh, uh, to himself with respect to uh, Del Potro and Burdich, uh, who he emulates. That's very helpful in, in getting a visual with respect to the game that Taylor Fritz has and wants to have and emulate. And, you know, looking at your, your writing, uh, Jared, of, of previewing 20 of the youngsters on secondserve.blogspot.com. I'm looking and I see that uh, Taylor Fritz also has a win over Mackenzie McDonald uh, at UCLA. And uh, a couple years ago in Cincinnati, interesting, Mackenzie McDonald was a wild card in the qualifying draw and actually beat Steve Johnson, uh, who obviously we know who uh, he is with respect to his career at the University of Southern California. And Mackenzie McDonald beat Steve Johnson on grandstand court to get into the main draw of the Western and Southern Open 
last year, two years ago, excuse me. So for Fritz to be able to have a win against McDonald, that's uh, that's really saying something as well. Uh, not only that, but uh, the win over Kozlov as well. And um, another name here that we're going to talk about here, 19-year-old from New York, Noah Rubin. I was looking at some of his results. He's been a finalist in a couple of futures, uh, one in France in 14 and another in 2013, a finalist. Uh, you probably know more about Noah Rubin than most, so uh, away you go with uh, the analysis on Noah Rubin. Yeah, well, you mentioned uh, Mackenzie McDonald. Mackenzie is uh, one of the top-ranked college players in the world, as we were just talking about college. And uh, Noah Rubin himself decided he's going to go to Wake Forest only for one year if he's going to play his freshman season and then go pro. He's already announced that. He actually made an interesting comment. He said uh, something along the lines of, had I known that these uh, scoring changes were going to be made to Division One. Uh, I definitely reconsider my choice to go play college tennis because he had he had made his announcement that he was going to Wake Forest before the changes were made. Uh, but he's now one of the top ranked, according to the ITA rankings, uh, of all the newcomers in Division One tennis. And so hopefully sometime this year in college tennis we'll get to see McDonald play against Rubin. I think that's one of those dream matchups that we could have this year. Definitely want to see that happen, and that's a reason uh, to be watching college tennis. Uh, you mentioned mm-hmm. Steve Johnson also, guys like John Isner, Sundev Devarman, Kevin Anderson, John Patrick Smith, guys who have had successful college careers and then go on to be successful in the pros as well. Um, you know, I said for Fritz, I don't think it would be the right move for him to go to college, uh, but that does not mean it, it's the wrong move for everyone. Uh, for a lot of guys, it is a good move to go. Uh, play college tennis, and you can have success there. And so there is a reason to be watching what's going on in in the college ranks. Um, As for Noah Rubin, I I got to see him uh, just rally. I didn't actually get to see him play. He was one of the practice partners along with Colin Altamirano uh, at San Diego during Davis Cup. And Noah Rubin, uh, he warmed up uh, Donald Young every day on the clay. Uh, He moved very well on the clay. and, you know, they'd, they'd play some rallies, and Noah Rubin was hanging in there with him. Uh, you know, it's one thing to do it in practice, another thing to do it in a match. But you saw Rubin's talent. Uh, his movement was very good. Uh, it was very solid off both the forehand and backhand. Good touch. And I think that touch, uh, you really saw that in the junior Wimbledon finals. He didn't play a lot of junior tennis in his career, but he did play Wimbledon uh, this last year, and he beat Stefan Kosloff in the final. Uh, he's 18 years old now, so he did have a little bit of an age advantage on Kostoff. Uh, but he's certainly right up there when you talk about those other Americans that are about to break through. Uh, Noah Rubin certainly one to keep uh, your eye on. And, you know, just in a few months, his college career will be over. It, I mean, it's a very short career, uh, but it'll be over with, and then he'll be full-time in the pros and uh, keep building on that ranking uh, that he, ha- he has a little bit right now just from the, the few events he has played. Then he's going to go full-time and uh, – Pretty soon we'll be seeing him on the Challenger Tour, I think. No, that that's great analysis. Thank you for that. And interesting uh, with respect to his comments about reconsidering possibly uh, the decision to go to Wake Forest and play college tennis, uh, that he made that decision prior to some of the scoring changes um, by college tennis. So in- interesting there. And, you know, you, you attended the uh, Great Britain-USA Davis Cup tie in San Diego last year, Jared. And funny, uh, you mentioned a couple of the guys here uh, that that experience to be able to hit, be hitting partners, warming Donald Young up. 
Davis Cup gets bashed quite a bit. I, I, for one, like the format just the way it is. And people can point to the fact that Roger Federer and Stan Wawrinka are not going to play for Switzerland defending. That opens up the door, in my opinion, for other guys to go and represent their nation. They could have a career moment there. But let's also look at uh, some of the guys that are not necessarily playing but are on the squad, the practice partners. Those impressions, those observations, the ability to be with uh hopefully their peers to be and uh that that that's priceless with respect to the development of of players not only the united states but also around the world and we're just not talking about the, the you know the the main draw if you will for davis cup we're talking about group one group two group three uh anywhere around the world to be able to to represent your nation and play or even be a practice partner that experience uh to be able to in this case hang out with Jim Currier and, and get some pointers here and there, invaluable in my opinion. And, and just, you know, a sidebar uh, along those lines, if you, since we have Davis Cup coming up, uh, were you able to see any – when, when uh, you know, you were there for Davis Cup last year in San Diego, were, were these guys on the court uh, warming them up uh, beforehand as well, or just was that prior to during the week? Um, I got there on the Friday when play started, and uh, you you walk out there, and Andy Murray at the time was hitting uh, with Kyle Edmond, one of the juniors from Great Britain. And that was fun to see because people are already talking about Kyle Edmond being the next uh, Tim, Tim Edmond, Andy Murray kind of uh, Great Britain hope. Uh, and then right after that, it was Noah Rubin and Donald Young walk out and hit, and then later Colin Altamirano and Sam Query. And so you see uh, – all these guys hitting ahead of time, that was a lot of fun to watch. I like what you said about how there's all these uh, positive things that come out of Davis Cup. A lot of people like to focus on the negative, like uh, some of the court conditions at some of these smaller countries and um, also, you know, that some of the top guys not participating. But a lot of people overlook a lot of the positives that do come out of Davis Cup, and, and I love what you said about that, about how these young guys are getting to practice with the next generation, get tips from guys like uh, Jim Courier and, and other great Davis Cup captains. Um, I think that there's a lot of benefit that comes out of that that gets overlooked sometimes. Could completely agree, absolutely. And we've got Davis Cup uh, around the world coming up uh, this weekend, starting on Friday. And you mentioned uh, Colin Altamanaro. We'll talk about him in just a second. But before that, uh, Jared, uh, someone that uh, came up on the radar again for everybody uh, last Last year in August, uh, Francis Tiafo, 17 years old from the D.C. area in Maryland. He got uh, into the main draw, I believe wild card, uh, to play the Washington 500. Lost 4-4 four and four to the Russian Donskoy, but uh, that, was, uh, that was a primetime match, and uh, a lot of people were tuning in with respect to some hype and some excitement about Francis Tiafo. Again, just 17 years old. He's gotten deep in some futures events already this year in 2015, getting to a final and a semifinal. I saw part of that match against Donskoy. Like what I've seen, I probably haven't seen as much of him as you have. So your thoughts on Francis Tiafo? Yeah, the hype machine really got going around him when uh, Sports Illustrated writer Jeff Wertheim called him uh, the next big hope for American tennis. And there's been a lot of pressure on him since then, but it was a very interesting piece where you just talk about his life. Uh, his dad was a janitor at a tennis club, and so he and his uh, brother grew up on tennis courts, and they just hit the ball with each other, you know, not uh, a lot of formal coaching, not going through uh, all this stuff that all these other guys go through as far as USG and whatnot. It's just him and his brother going out on the court 
uh, hitting around. So it's a, it's a great story, especially about how tennis can be accessible uh, to you. You don't have to go through the clubs and the USTA and all this stuff to be successful, whereas, I mean, that does have its place. Uh, but tennis is a sport for anyone to go out there, and, and you can be successful by working hard. And so I think just from that perspective, uh, Tiapo's exciting and fun to watch, and I think a lot of people are going to be cheering for him because of that. Um, having said that, you watch his game and, and you can see the technical issues um, just from not being coached um, from the beginning. You know, he's found some things that work for him, uh, but, you know, technically there, there's some issues, and, and I wonder if, you know, that's something that's going to have to be corrected or if he can just find a way to be successful despite um, having a unique way of doing it. I think the serve is one thing that's certainly going to have to be changed. The ball toss is being away from uh, he serves a little bit like Ani Ivanovic with the way it's, mm. it's tossed. Um, it, it just floats away from him, and he's having to jump out wide and, and uh, really limit his option and limit his ability to disguise his serve. Uh, but you, you can't deny the speed he has, um, the great racket head control. Um, he just moves so quickly around the court, extremely talented, extremely athletic, um, and he's a lot of fun to watch with that. And, you know, people say – Speed never goes into slumps. And uh, being a player in tennis that doesn't go into slumps is a huge advantage. Uh, he's going to run into some matchup problems, but you know he's someone who's going to be consistent as far as the things that he's good at are never going to go away. He's not going to have you know an off day where he suddenly can't run as fast. You know, you're, that's pretty consistent and something that he can rely, up, rely upon, and that's something that's pretty exciting. Uh, he's another guy like Fritz and Kostov just just recently turned 17 years old, so very young, lots of time, um, and certainly he's going to start to get some support from the USTA. He already has gotten some wild cards, uh, but maybe also now some some help as far as getting uh, proper coaching that he needs uh, to continue to develop his game, and he's going to have to make some changes, but one thing it's not going to change is the speed that he has and uh, how quickly he moves around the court, the, the flexibility, uh, the gumpiness. That's a word we use when we talk about Djokovic, uh, but Jocko mm-hmm. has that as well, and uh, you know what a huge advantage that is in tennis. Well, with respect to that uh, that Gumbyism, if you will, would you uh, fair enough to? Uh, I'm going to ask you whom on the ATP tour. It sounds a little bit uh, like like a Montfis acrobat out there. Would that be fair? Yes, absolutely. Um, definitely, the the comparisons to Montfis are already out there. Uh, he seems to have a more desire and more focus than what Montfis has but perhaps not um, some of the, the skills that Monfils has, but the talent, the athleticism, just like Monfils as far as that, um, and the determination and work ethic, he has that, and that's what Monfils lacks. And so I think that, that's all the more exciting. Completely agree, and I'll just chime in here because, I, you know, the story, the backstory of Tiafo with respect to his father being a janitor and he and his brother on the courts. And I, I always like to joke with uh, – with my golf friends, if you will, I say, you know, you guys, uh, you're spending six hours on the course. If the first two holes don't go your way, you've already plunked down 100, 150 bucks, and you're miserable for the next five or six hours on the course. I say, I paid three bucks for the can of balls. I went to the high school to play, and if it's not my day, I'm off the court in 45 minutes to an hour, so they always get a kick out of that. But uh, the point being that uh, tennis is very accessible. Uh, the rack, the equipment's not that expensive. A can of balls, three bucks or so, and you can find plenty of municipal parks to play in. So, uh, again, I completely agree. 
not everybody goes through the Boletary or Everett Academy or some of the famous academies in Europe to play. This is a very accessible sport, and someone like Francis Tiafo, we are all cheering him on. And, Jared, you mentioned uh, your time in San Diego for Davis Cup last year, and one of the hitting partners was Colin Altmanaro. This is someone I don't know too much about, 19 years old. Uh, he, as you mentioned, was on the Davis Cup squad as a practice partner, hitting partner. What can you tell us about him? Yeah, he snuck up on me, too. I hadn't heard of him before that. I actually had to take a picture of him and send it to some of my Twitter followers and get them to help me out, figure out who it was. Uh, He's someone who's a little bit lower as far as uh, the hype surrounding him goes, but he was, like Fiafo, in that U.S. Open uh, qualifying. He did well there. He's being coached uh, by Taylor Dent, I believe. Um, And so he's someone who's getting uh, the proper coaching and getting the help from the USDA. And, uh, excuse me, he's coached by uh, Joseph Gilbert, uh, not Taylor Dent. Uh, t- I reminded Taylor Dent was the one commentating the match that I was watching when he was out playing uh, at the U.S. Open. Uh, Taylor Dent had some interesting insights about him, uh, just knowing his game uh, from seeing him. I, I believe Taylor Dent with, went with Altamirano uh, out to Federer's training camp um, during the offseason. Federer trains with a bunch of the young guys every year, and Altamirano was one of the guys uh, who – got an invite, and I remember Taylor Dent shared a story about how Alter Murano, he's about to play Federer, and he said to him, I think I can get a set off this guy. I know, and he's <laughs> talking about Roger Federer, the greatest player of all time, uh, but he has the belief that his game uh, is pretty good, and one of the things I noticed when, when I watched him out at San Diego was he had a huge serve, and uh, mm-hmm. he was playing points against Sam Curry, and he was winning points uh, just with his serve, uh, which is extremely fun to see and so eventually Jim Courier comes out onto the court and he says all right Colin no more first serves uh you get one serve and it's the second serve and if if you make it then you play out the point if you miss it it's a double fault and uh so he starts throwing in some second serves and Sam Courier being the world-class player that he is just jumped all over him and uh Courier taunted Colin a little bit said yeah you're not so good without your first serve anymore are you but uh he certainly does have a great first serve and, you know, there's there's nothing wrong with that. Um, a lot of players on tour have success just by having a great first serve. Um, he's six foot two, uh, 185 pounds, and, and he's a big guy out there on the court. And he is solid from the baseline, but having a first serve that's uh, so big is just a huge weapon. Uh, like speed, that's something that doesn't go away. He's going to have a big serve every single match. Um, you know, that's something that he can rely upon. And having, having a set weapon that he can now build the rest of his game around. I think it's huge for him. Uh, but he's already 19, only 757 in the world. So the hype around him isn't as high as some of these other American guys. Uh, but he can certainly do well, I think. Interesting. And, you know, the, the little drill that Courier threw at him, it reminds me of, uh, you know, Pete Sampras. Uh, what made him so great uh, was the fa- his serve, obviously. And his what, what really – Separated Pete, I think, is he had the guts, if you will, to uh, to continue to – his second serve wasn't that far off from his first serve, and that really caused a lot of problems for guys on tour, and that won Pete Sampras a lot of points. So interesting if, uh, if Altamonaro could maybe take a page out of the Pete Sampras playbook if he's got confidence enough in his big first serve to uh, – his second, maybe not as much, maybe putting a little bit more on it uh, when he was playing those practice points against uh, Query, just going for it. Who knows? Obviously, uh, 
easier said than done with respect to precision and execution. But uh, yeah, along those lines, just to, just going to get your thought on um, an interesting analysis. Thanks for sharing that Davis Cup experience. But if you could maybe uh, give us a, an ATP version of, of who Colin uh, reminds you of, Jared. Yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, he, he's built a little bit like Vavrinka. He has the two-handed backhand, not uh, the one-hander like Vavrinka. And he, uh, he kind of alligator arms his backhand, a little bit like Grenoyers on that side. Uh, but just as far as having a big first serve, you know, there's a lot of guys you compare him to. Uh, he's not as tall as some of them. Uh, maybe even compare him to Ryan Harrison. Obviously, Ryan Harrison's not known for his first serve. Uh, but when Ryan Harrison really reaches back and cracks that first serve, he can get it up above 140 miles an hour. Um, and so, you know, he, he's kind of at the same height at Ryan Harrison, um, but I think more consistently he's he's throwing in the big serves. Yeah, he's a tough one to find a comparison to. Uh, if I have okay. to take a, take a little bit of each of those three guys' games, I, I can't pick one. Mm-hmm. Interesting, but uh, go, going back again, uh, we we talked about the importance of Davis Cup, and this is someone that you had a chance to see. Uh, you didn't recognize him at first either, but again, just the experience of hanging with Coach Curry or Sam Query, the rest of the U.S. squad, the Bryan brothers, uh, that will pay dividends for Colin Optimero going forward. And um, someone that you're very high on as well, Jared, 18 years old, Ernesto Escobedo. I was looking at some of his results he took. Uh, he defeated uh, Duckworth of Australia, uh, and also took him to three sets. Uh, also, uh, got some future results in in 2013. But uh, you know, Duckworth has been a number one seed in a couple of challengers lately, and uh, Escudero is only 18 years old. Your thoughts on him? Yeah, uh, he's had some injury problems of lately. Uh, that's been an issue for him, and uh, that came up in that second match against uh, Duckworth, the match he should have won. Uh, but injuries got in the way there, um, and injuries continue to plague him throughout the rest of the season. He's someone, actually, who's from my neck of the woods. He grew up in West Covina, which is uh, about five minutes from where I live now, and he actually practices on the exact same courts I practice on uh, at Zeus Pacific University. So every once in a while I'll go out to you know, hit a, bu- a basket of balls, hit some serves, and two courts over is Ernesto Escobedo uh, just absolutely crushing forehands. Uh, and the guy has massive ground strokes, bigger than anyone else um, on these of these teenagers, even bigger than Kyrgios. When he when he unleashes wow. on that forehand, uh, is is massive. Uh, but there's there's a lot of problems in his game right now as far as uh, technique. Uh, he doesn't have a solid base uh, to build his game on, and uh, there's a lot of people who are worried that's going to break down uh, when he starts facing against guys that. Uh, technically are solid and just as talented as he are, you know, those guys in the top 100, um, that his lack of a solid technical base is going to be a problem. He's also gone through the coaching carousel, uh, has not been able to stick with the coach for a long time, and as I already mentioned, the injury. Uh, so those are three things that are really big and you worry about those. Uh, but at 18, he's already 532 in the world and uh, has all the weapons that you could ask for in a young guy. Um, so just because he has the ability to be sky high at times, uh, you have to consider him among uh, these teenagers because at his best, uh, he's, he's extremely dangerous and uh, really can beat anyone on the Challenger Tour, I think. Um, you just worry about some of those other things, the, the technical base that he has, the, the coaching issues and uh, injury issues. If he can't 
get those figured out soon. Uh, we could be looking at a, a little bit of lost potential there. Uh, but he's someone that I certainly cheer for just from the standpoint of we practice on the same courts, which is uh, mm-hmm. pretty cool to me when, when I found that out. Uh, this guy that I've been hitting on courts right next to all this time is actually, you know, um, uh, a world-famous athlete, a very successful one. <laughs> uh, per- perhaps not world-famous yet, but, uh, I mean, a world-class athlete. Um, yeah. He's actually been homeschooled his whole career. His parents uh, only speak Spanish, and so he speaks Spanish and English and uh, has been homeschooled growing up playing tennis, and uh, he's been very successful, I think. Interesting. Well, that boy, for you to be able to practice a quarter or two away, two two questions. I mean, the sound must just be popping uh, off of his racket with with respect to the uh, forans that you're you're saying that he's crushing. Uh, you know, Kyrgios like, or even in some cases better than Kyrgios. Uh, would that be? Uh, I'm not sure about his build. Would would that be a similar comparison, uh, Nick Kyrgios, or somebody else on tour right now? Now he's a little bit thicker than Nick Kyrgios, about the same height. Um, his build is a lot like Yersi Yanovich, um, mm. and probably a similar game, just take out the drop shot. Uh, does not like okay. the drop shot. Uh, you know, the thing with Escobedo is he has he has one game plan, that's uh, crush the ball, and you, you get to see that against Duckworth. Uh, that match is on YouTube. I got to see that live, uh, a live stream of it, but you can go back and watch it on YouTube, and you just watch the points, and every single ball, he's hitting it as hard as he can and extremely flat. Uh, he's not going for margin. He's going for winners. Um, and I think kind of that the lack of variety uh, is a result of having, you know, not a good base to build on technically. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's, I remember the, the first time I saw him out there, and you, as you mentioned, you could just hear it, and he's absolutely crushing the ball, and, and there's, you know, a lot of people surrounded around the courts watching, uh, parents and coaches. And so uh, I, I turned and asked the guy who I was hitting with, uh, who is this guy, and He's like, yeah, is there Ernesto Escobedo? And uh, he's uh, one of the top American juniors. And so I, I look him up, and, and he was right. And uh, at the time, Escobedo was 17. Uh, and then a few months later, he's playing the U.S. Open qualifiers um, and doing well there. And, you know, an injury is the only thing that stopped him from getting into the main draw uh, is that right arm. And um, I was going to go see him later play in uh, some of the Futures events in Claremont, Costa Mesa, Irvine, but he dropped out of all three of those with that same injury. Uh, oh, wow. So, missed opportunity to see more of him there. But it looks like he's been back on onto the Futures Tour again this year, and uh, so far injuries have not been too much of an issue. Uh, but he just recently, a few weeks ago, changed coaches again. So, not sure what's going on with all that. Yeah, it's just one last question. Given uh, you know he just goes for it, uh, would, would it be fair then uh, his game, if you will, the fact that he just blasts uh, all over the place? Is that uh, is there a parallel there to Fernando Gonzalez and the way he used to play? I, I thought you might go there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> there certainly is a fair comparison there. I think Gonzalez is a little bit better about knowing uh, when to and when not to. Also, Gonzalez had a had the clear weakness on his backhand. Uh, but Ernesto Escobedo goes for on the backhand as much as he does on the forehand. I mean, he's just firing off both wings. Um, and, yeah, it, it's fun to watch when he's hitting on all cylinders. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll switch gears to the women's tour because uh, t- two, uh, actually the, what you how you describe that reminds me of two ladies on the women's tour. Obviously, 
Camilla Georgie, who I call the Fernando Gonzalez of the WTA, who just goes for it again and again and again, uh, much to her detriment, but has also gotten some nice results as well. And then also, I just uh, just saw two weeks ago in Surprise, Jared, at the 25K ITF uh, event, uh, Samantha Crawford, who uh, actually won the 2012 U.S. Open Juniors title. Uh, she actually lost pretty badly to Francois Banda, 6-1-6-1. I was able to see some of her doubles match the following day. But this is someone who, again, was talking to some of the spectators and coaches uh, who were there who watched the Banda match the day before, saying she was just just unloading on the ball. Unfortunately, it was, was spraying it. But, um, yeah, I... That's that's fun to watch, and when someone is on and clicking, boy, it doesn't matter who's on the other side of the net. I, I saw Santiago Geraldo play uh, Nadal at Indian Wells, and his forehand was – Nadal couldn't even touch it. This is years ago, but uh, when you were describing Escobedo's uh, forehand, and again, lethal as it is, I, I think I'm going to go back and watch that Duckworth match, uh, some of that, because that's, uh, that's a real treat to see somebody once they're on like that. So um, – Good point. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, Jared, a few more Americans we're going to talk about here. Um, uh, I'm familiar with a couple of names, one of which uh, that you wanted to discuss briefly. I don't know the name at all. Uh, Nate Ponworth, what can you tell us about him? Yeah, he's someone I had heard of uh, a couple of days before I went out to USC to watch the the match between Kossoff and Fritz. And uh, right after Kossoff and Fritz finished, he went out there against another American, Mitch Kruger, who's having a great year. Uh, and for the first set, uh, Ponwith was the better player, better than Kruger, who uh, went on to do very well at that tournament. Um, he took it to a tiebreaker, and what Ponwith did in that first set off his forehand and backhand, I was tweeting out there that uh, just for that one set, Ponwith was better than uh, Fritz or Kofloff were at any point in their match. And uh, he's wow. a year younger than them. Uh, he certainly hasn't gotten as much recognition as some of the other people. He hasn't put himself out there and played many matches. So that, that one time I saw him live uh, was the only time I've seen him, so I don't have a whole lot more to go off of with him. But I was extremely impressed. I just whips the forehand. It, it really is like a whip, a lot of wrist action. Uh, very impressed with the way he did that. And uh, backhand uh, misfired a little bit off that wing, but also just uh, very good off that. He ended up losing the tiebreaker in the first set and uh, kind of lost him mentally after that. And Kruger, the veteran, uh, in comparison at 22 years old, kind of ran through him. Uh, but, and, you know, a great effort by a 16-year-old to reach the quarterfinal yeah. at such a big Futures event. Uh, that, that Futures event had a lot of big names in it. Uh, so just reaching the, the quarterfinals for him at 16 years old, I thought was a huge result, and hopefully we'll see more of him soon. Yeah, th- thanks for bringing that. Uh, uh, certainly below the radar, I couldn't find too much uh, anything about him. And also, when you when you posted his name to uh, discuss, I was in scramble mode. But uh, I guess the question, uh, Jared, and again, very outstanding that you were able to see him and, and very impressive that he was outplaying some of the guys that we've already talked about. But uh, if you could uh, maybe do a side-by-side uh, who Ponwith's game uh, matches up with uh, or runs parallel to on the ATP Tour at this point in time for our listeners. Uh, maybe a right-handed version of Bradley Kahn, just as far as uh, the stroke production for both guys. They really whip it on both sides, uh, really use their wrist well, get a lot of uh, spin on the ball. Uh, not like Nadal as far as the high finish. He keeps his finish uh, at his shoulder and very solid with that. Um, but 
you know, he, he feels comfortable going for a lot of power because he has so much spin, so much control, and uh, you know, that's, that's a good combination to have. Also, has a good serve, especially for a 16-year-old, um, and so that was exciting to see. You know, he's not so a big guy with a big build; he's still pretty small at only 16, um, so he's going to grow physically, and uh, I think that'll make his serve even better and uh, those ground strokes even more, even stronger. Um, so I think he can only go up, and he's already at a good spot. Yeah, 16 years old. That's uh, obviously yeah, a lot of room to to go. And uh, you mentioned uh, you know got into a little bit of trouble and then lost uh, lost his way against uh, a veteran, someone six years his senior. That's certainly understandable. At the same point in time, what you were able to watch uh, bodes very well for the future of Nate Ponwith. And a couple more Americans, uh, Michael Moe, whose name uh, surfaces uh, quite a bit. Lately, actually, uh, most recently, he made second round of Memphis qualifying, took a set off the veteran Victor Hinescu of Romania. Big news there to take that set. Uh, wasn't able to get through qualifying there. But uh, last year, Jared, last October, got to the semis and a final of a couple of futures tournaments in Texas. 17-year-old Michael Moe, your thoughts? Uh, Moe's a very good player. He's someone that I haven't seen in person, but um, another guy that's just extremely talented, athletic, and uh, you know the kind of stuff that doesn't go into slumps without athleticism. Uh, he's had those good results in the Futures Tour, as you mentioned, uh, but he's been even more impressive, I think, on the Juniors Tour, where he's done his best, uh, played some great matches against guys like Andre Rublev uh, and some of the other top American guys uh, in Juniors. Um, and now he's going through the process of transitioning over to seniors and trying to find that same level of success there. He already has uh, the Futures title, as you mentioned, um, and he's just gonna he's gonna keep getting better. Uh, he's at 17. Um, he's not as developed as some of the other 17-year-olds, but I, I don't look at that as a bad thing. I look at him as basically just then a young 17-year-old, uh, someone with a lot of room to grow, and he's going to grow. And uh, already 654 in the world. Uh, he's his results are going to start to become more consistent now as he becomes more comfortable on the Futures Tour and uh, starts to learn how to use that athleticism to his advantage. Uh, he's certainly, of these guys, he's, he's one of the ones I haven't seen as much, um, but um, a lot of other people are talking about him. He's got the attention of a lot of American tennis fans uh, as someone who can continue to do well, and uh, I think that's just a result of him being extremely athletic. Yeah, good. I, I've seen uh, you know a lot of tweets. His name comes up uh, quite a bit uh, from some of the uh, folks who cover the youngsters and the collegiate uh, circuit. And so I, you see his name getting deep in tournaments and either winning matches or, or you know losing in tie breaks to uh, to not get through. But uh, I've, I've seen Michael Moe's name, you know, fairly regularly on Twitter with respect to the coverage that he's getting. And last American to talk about here, uh, Riley Opelka and. Uh, don't know much about him except the fact that he's 17 years old. What can you tell us, Ryan? Excuse me, Jared. Um, Opelka, you know, compare him to a top 100 player. This one's the easiest. John Isner, absolutely identical to John Isner, uh, except for he's even better on clay um, at this point mm-hmm. in his career. Obviously, he's, he's going to grow more on that. Um, you know, he's a big guy, big server, uh, very tall, doesn't move around the court well, but just with his serve, he can keep himself in a match against anyone. Uh, he can really do well there. At uh, USA, six futures this year. He uh, reached the quarterfinals, ended up losing to Connor Smith, who's having a great year, but took him to three sets. Impressive wins early on against 
uh, other players. And I, I thought, you know, just having that result against Connor Smith is very impressive. Um, and just being a big server, I think, alone is going to help him to keep getting his ranking up. It takes a little bit longer for some of these big servers to break through. Um, so, you know, the, the hype on him isn't there yet like it is with the other guys. Uh, but it will be soon just because um, he's going to continue to develop this, this big serve. It's going to take it time to make its way up through the rankings, but it's going to get there eventually. And uh, he's someone, you know, he's a safe bet as far as being a top 200 player pretty soon. Um, you know, maybe, maybe longer than some of these other guys, but he will get there. And, uh, you know, there's, there's very little that can go wrong for him. Well, that's great to hear. Uh, a 17-year-old like Isner, if if you will, that uh, that can play on clay as well. So that's uh, that's a huge upside. And you know, after the long drought of uh, not really having too much the cupboard being bare, if you will, in in the United States, and a few people uh, you know making some noise and then sort of disappearing and not doing well. And I'll credit to Ryan Harrison for the nice run he had this last week as well in Acapulco, but. Uh, Jared and I have just discussed uh, 10 Americans in their teens between 16 and 19 years old who, uh, you know, we're looking at top 200 and, and, and better going forward. And, Jared, I, I know that the rest of the world has a lot of players to talk about as well. We can probably do a, a part two with the young guns, uh, just concentrating on some of the uh, outstanding tennis players from Korea, from Russia. Obviously, the Australians have quite a bit going on right now. Serbia, uh, Chile as well, and uh, some of the challenges that Spain's going to have going forward. We'll talk about that in a future show, uh, but um, one thing that we do want to discuss here before we talk a little bit about some of the results from last week is, uh, you know, you shared with me, you want to talk a little bit about some of the uh, teenage success and how that might be a, a predictor, good or bad, with respect to what uh, guys can do on the ATP circuit going forward. We talked about all these guys and their potential, but that doesn't always happen. Your your thoughts on um, on what we're seeing here, how that might translate and be parlayed going forward. Yeah, and we, we've talked already about some of the different ways that guys have success, whether it's team uh, battling out in the futures and really developing his game there and then uh, kind of breezing his way quickly through uh, challengers. Other guys like uh, Noah Rubin, we've mentioned, Mackenzie McDonald, John Isner, Steve Johnson, guys who go through the college uh, ranks have success there. And uh, other guys that um, had very successful junior careers um, and went on to be successful on the ATP. Ricardo Sparonk has only had a great junior's career. Uh, his, his professional career has been uh, slowed by injuries so far. Uh, but he has had some good results and uh, been someone who's been in the top 100 for a while. And so there's there's a variety of ways to to make that transition to being a 16-year-old prodigy to a 25-year-old top 100 player. Um, a lot of different ways to do it. And sometimes people, when they start comparing uh, these top players, they look at, okay, well, who's the highest ranked that's not yet 20? Um, but I think there's there's a lot more that goes into it than that because you have guys like, uh, Taylor Fritz, who's barely even played any professional events, uh, but has been a very successful player and is going to be a successful player uh, despite having uh, the lower ranking. So I think there's there's just a lot of ways um, that guys can go on to be successful, and it's a lot of fun to see um, the different ways that they do it. Some take longer to break through than others, and um, I think that's also the fun about talking uh, about these seniors is that we don't know really what's going to happen with them, and it's a little bit of a prediction game, 
Um, but, you know, knowing who these guys are before they break through makes it all the more exciting uh, when you see them making a run to the quarterfinals of Wimbledon and beating Nadal and uh, doing these kinds of things. Completely agree. I, I, yeah, I, I, it's always special to see someone uh, doing so well. I remember actually way back when the Bryan brothers, they played the old tournament here in Scottsdale. I was able to see them when they were just coming up, and they beat a, a, a veteran Czech squad. And, uh, you know, the Bryans were just out of college at that point in time. And so, uh, you know, I stuck around after the singles night match to watch the Bryan brothers, side, who, whom I didn't know who they were at that point in time. And lo and behold, uh, the greatest uh, doubles combination ever in professional tennis. So uh, wonderful to see. And, and, and as you mentioned, you, you had a front row seat, if you will, a couple of different places, obviously, at the uh, University of Southern California for the Futures Tournament there, as well as being able to see a couple of the guys that we mentioned as Davis Cup hitting partners in San Diego last year. And Jared, again, uh, as I shared, a lot more to talk about with respect to some of the players around the world. We're going to have a part two of this show, but uh, before we wrap up, I do want to talk about um, some of the action that happened last week, a couple of 500 tournaments as well as a 250. Um, want to just give a, a review of that. Roger Federer over Novak Djokovic for his seventh title in Dubai. You know, Roger Federer has had historically terrible breakpoint conversion numbers. Uh, Pete Sampras had that issue as well, and uh, I remember asking Federer about that in Cincinnati, and, uh, you know, it's not something he was proud of, the fact that he struggled he was two for two against Novak Djokovic, but probably more impressively in the five wins he had in Dubai, Jared, 19 for 27 in breakpoint conversions. We've seen Fed over and over again, especially against Nadal, just not be able to break even at, uh, you know, Nadal serving at love 40 or even Djokovic for that matter. Roger Federer took care of business, not only had all the breakpoint conversions, but also dug out of three 15-40 holes against Djokovic to win and the line score is, again, two for two and break points for Federer, zero for seven for Djokovic. Federer, 11 aces, one double fault. Djokovic, one ace, two doubles. Djokovic played a very good match, and yet it was Fed who, who got the win. Uh, your thoughts uh, on, on that final, first of all, before we talk about uh, another match in that tournament. Yeah, Dubai offers very fast courts, and so Federer having the bigger serve of the two is certainly – uh, fact there, it's uh, second year in a row where Federer's beaten Djokovic in Dubai. Last year did a great job coming to the net. This year served very well, and as you mentioned, uh, played the break points very well. I think him saving those break points is just as impressive as him converting those two break points. I think sometimes the, the notion that he uh, struggles with converting uh, break points, I think that gets blown out of proportion sometimes because uh, you know, he, he struggles to do it in the big matches when everyone's watching. Uh, but I think on a day-to-day basis, he's, he's good enough at uh, converting those break points. Um, and you saw it there against Djokovic. Uh, you know, I think that uh, this idea that he doesn't do well in the break points come from, uh, you know, it, it happens, as you mentioned, against Nadal uh, when everyone's watching. Um, and, you know, certainly there is something to it, uh, but I think everyone, Every once in a while, it gets blown out of proportion a little bit because he is—he is one of the greatest players of all time. And you don't get to be that if you don't convert break points. True. Yeah. Good. Good points there. And, and again, the speed of the courts—that's you know when I'm in Cincinnati every year, which which are very very fast courts as well. It's always interesting to get 
the player's perspective of how the courts are playing. In some cases, the outside courts are playing differently than, than the main court or grandstand. And, you know, even coming from uh, Masters 1000 in Canada, either Toronto or Montreal, even though it's a hard court, it's a different surface speed. And uh, as you mentioned, Roger Federer really likes those quick courts, and uh, he's won Dubai seven times. And one other uh, result there I want to talk about, uh, Borna Choric, who was a lucky loser in Dubai, uh, lost in qualifying, but uh, lost to Federer in the semifinals quite handily. But nice result for Chorich. He made the most of uh, being able to get in the main draw. 6-1, 6-3 win over Andy Murray, who came into that tournament as the number three player in the world, has now fallen to number five as a result of a couple of other uh, good results from other players. But uh, Chorich, someone we talked about early in this show, 6163. 6-3, uh, you surprised by that result, and uh, what what happened with Murray there? Yeah, it's, it's hard to know what to make of this result. As, as we had talked a little bit about before the show, um, just because in Dubai it isn't a mandatory event. Uh, the way they get Federer, Djokovic, Berdic to show up at this event is by paying them massive appearance fees, uh, which basically means they get paid whether they win or lose. And Andy Murray obviously has the big Davis Cup tie coming up, uh, then Indian Wells. Uh, so there's certainly bigger things on Andy Murray's calendar. Um, so just from that perspective, it's hard to know how much to read into this. Uh, but a 6-1, 6-3 scoreline, uh, that's very convincing. So whether you know Murray's playing at 100% or not, uh, to beat one of the big four, 6-1, 6-3, uh, as a teenager, you, you can't look past that. That's a huge win for Borna Chorich. Um, put that right up there along with his win over Nadal now. Two times he's beaten a big four player on hard courts. Uh, massive results for him and uh, definitely someone who's already got a lot of attention and he's deserving it. Um, keep keep an eye on him going forward. Yeah, and I, w- I was impressed, even though the scoreline uh, was not great against Roger Federer in the semis. I-, I liked his demeanor on court. He almost broke right out of the gate uh, in the first uh, game in that match, but he was... Uh, he wasn't happy with himself when he was missing uh, some some forehands. And, uh, again, the, it almost reminded me of a younger Djokovic when uh, he knows that this is a ball he should put in play or even hit for a winner or close to it and was misfiring. And he wasn't happy with himself. And I, I, I liked that uh, that demeanor, that fight, uh, even when he was playing against uh, Roger Federer in, in in Dubai. That was nice to see from, from Chorich. And, um, another uh, nice 500 result for David Ferrer, back-to-back 500s. This is really remarkable, Jared. 18-1 and one this year for Ferrer, three titles in 2015. The tough turnaround, uh, Rio de Janeiro on clay, Acapulco, hard court, David Ferrer wins them in back-to-back weeks. Uh, remarkable. And uh, in that final, took out uh, Kanish Corey, who took him out in the Australian Open. Ferrer just keeps going and going. Um, and, again, let's not forget, he played very well, got to the Masters 1000 final in Cincinnati last year, losing the Federer there, getting weaving his way through a difficult draw. But uh, 2015, David Ferrer, 18-1, and one, three titles. Your analysis on Ferrer. Yeah, we're not even at Indian Wells yet. This is incredible what he's done to start the year, uh, winning three titles already. Uh, second time he's done that since uh, the 2012 season was the last time he did it. Uh, very impressive. You know, uh, came through two tight three-set matches. Well, the, the first one was tight with Tomlich and then uh, blew out Harrison after dropping the first set, took the second, third, 6-0, 6-0. Uh, but 
Harrison, Tomich, those those were guys who about two, three years ago if we were talking about the upcoming teen, teenagers. Mm-hmm. Those are two of them. And David Ferrer, uh, well into his 30s now, beats both of them and then goes on and beats Kane Shikori, another young guy. Uh, so, you know, it's weird what's going on with the tour because these older guys are having success like we're not used to seeing. The younger guys are having success like we're not used to seeing. Uh, you know, maybe it says something about these guys who are in between uh, 20 yeah. and 30 years old. Um, you know, it's just bizarre what what we're seeing with that as far as, I mean, even Ivo Karlovich uh, reaches the core pounds of this man. He's 36 years old, and uh, he's mm-hmm. coming up on a career-high ranking potentially uh, later on this season. Um, but obviously, you mentioned earlier Ryan Harrison. Great win for him to be Ivo Karlovich. Uh, won those last two tie-break sets, 7-6-0, 7-6-4. Uh, just by dropping the first set. Great result for Ryan Harrison. Uh, also beat Grigor Dimitrov. Uh, more to worry about with Dimitrov. We've mentioned this before. Not sure uh, you know, what's going on with him. He's struggling, and uh, this is getting a little worrying. Now another loss, uh, getting bageled in that last set even. Uh, a lot of eyes are going to be on him when we get to ending Wells. I'm curious to see if he can bounce back there uh, and show that this is just a fluke, that he's struggling at some of these smaller tournaments, or if there's something really to be worried about. He has not backed up very well that that semifinal appearance in Wimbledon. Completely agree. And, uh, yeah, I saw Janowitz uh, beat him up pretty badly in Cincinnati following – well, he did get to the – I believe he got to the semis, lost to uh, Songa in Canada right after Wimbledon, and that was his best result after that. But following that Wimbledon in Canada, he has really done – close to nothing uh, by his standards getting into the top 10 and all credit to Ryan Harrison who was an alternate for qualifying got all the way to the semis uh, beat Donald Young, Dimitrov, Karlovich and then took the first set from Ferrer before Ferrer figured him out and uh, nice result there for for Ryan Harrison obviously David Ferrer and wow what what a jam-packed week it is uh, Jared where Rafael Nadal is in action and wins a title and uh He's the third out of the three tournaments we're talking about here from last week. But again, in all fairness, uh, these were 500s uh, that Ferrer won in Dubai and uh, Ferrer won in Acapulco. Rafael Nadal finally gets his first title since Roland Garros last year, wins the 250 in Buenos Aires. Uh, Nice to see Rafa. He did struggle a little bit here and there, but uh, a win will do him some good. He got the title. And uh, also one other guy that we had talked about on previous shows who, unfortunately for him, was running into a uh, a nemesis in Pablo Cuevas. He lost three times in uh, the first couple months, Nicolas Almagro. He is uh, showing some improvement. And, again, uh, I'm sure the field isn't going to want to see him not seated at, at clay court tournaments coming up. Your thoughts, Buenos Aires, 250, Nadal the champ, and Almagro figuring it out. Yeah, nice run by Almagro. Good to see uh, Nadal back in the winner's circle. So both good things there. Not, uh, not a whole lot to say about it other than uh, this is good for tennis. And in the final, you see Juan Monaco taking against going against Nadal. Uh, the two were also doubles partners during the week. Uh, so that was always also fun to see, uh, see two doubles guys going against each other. Uh, Yuri Vaselli had another first-round loss. He got his first title of the year earlier in the year. Has not won a single match since then playing uh, the, these clay court events, uh, which is a little bit bizarre. Also lost in the first round of Australian Open, which obviously is hard courts. Um, hopefully he's going to be able to rebound when we do return uh, to the hard courts, Indian Wells. Um, but, yeah, keep an eye on him. 
a little bit of a lull after that, you know, finally breaking through and getting that first title. A little bit reminds me of what Murray did, finally gets Wimbledon and then goes into a major slump after that. Hopefully for Vaselli, this doesn't turn into a major slump. You know, it, it has. we're only a couple months into the season, so there's certainly time to turn this around. Uh, but a loss to Blasrola, who, who uh, was struggling on the Challenger Tour just a week ago, uh, not a good result for Vaselli. Yeah, I completely agree uh, with with that analysis, and uh, good for tennis to see Rafael Nadal uh, getting a victory again, a monumental one for him in Buenos Aires on clay. And uh, Jared, uh, as I mentioned, we are going to do part two of this show talking about some of the youngsters around the world. Uh, the Aussie Thanasi Kokonakis, 18 years old. The German Alexander Zverev, 17. Um, Andre Rublev, the Russian, 17 years old. Nicholas Jerry, 19 from Chile. Elias Emer, 18 from Sweden. These are just some of the names uh, that we're going to be talking about when we do the Young Guns Part 2, talking about the youngsters from the rest of the world, the teenagers, maybe some guys just into their 20s as well. But uh, when we uh, prior to doing that show, anything uh, that you wanted to uh, share before we sign off for today with respect to any more youngsters we talked about or uh, the action that we talked about last week or uh, maybe even just a little Davis Cup preview going forward? Uh, I just think, you know, we talked about 11 of the young Americans uh, that are in their teens right now. There's also a, a group of them around 20, 21 years old. There's the college guys, a lot of good American tennis guys coming up. And we're not talking about them just because they're good um, American tennis players. We're talking about them because these really are some of the best teenage players in the world. This is an exciting time for American tennis. Uh, and we're not just talking about them because we're Americans and they're Americans. These guys uh, legitimately are serious talents uh, that are going to be successful on the HP World Tour someday. Um, so all these names that you're hearing, uh, both here on Twitter, um, going around uh, amongst the American tennis fans, pay attention to them. These are going to be guys competing for Grand Slams hopefully someday. Um, serious talents there. Completely agree, and I, I was remiss to uh, include one other name we'll talk about on part two, Hyung Chung from Korea, 18 years old. I know you like him quite a bit. I saw a little bit of him on the uh, on the ATP Challenger stream as well. And one other point, uh, you mentioned, uh, yeah, these guys, not only are they going to be competing, I thought it was really cool on Twitter a couple days ago, Rajiv Ram uh, tweeted out that he was watching, I think, a Stanford-USC college tennis match, and uh, all credit to the Pac-12 networks for televising not only college tennis but also a lot of other college sports. But uh, you mentioned college tennis, uh, outstanding competition there at that level, and the Pac-12 network is one of the places where you can see college tennis these days live in its entirety. So on behalf of Jared Pine, this is Pete Zebron saying, Good afternoon, and we wish you well with your Davis Cup viewing going forward. And, Jared, looking forward to uh, hanging with you at Indian Wells in a couple weeks' time. Yeah, absolutely. That's going to be a lot of fun. Indeed. And uh, good afternoon, and we'll talk to you once again when we do part two of the Young Guns, talking about the rest of the world. We did the Americans today. We're going to talk about the rest of the world going forward in the next show on Passing Shots on the Pro 10 Radio Network. Good afternoon. No music. End of the story.
Thank you.